and also had a great time of fellowship, as Phil alluded to uh, this past week, when uh, Darren and Maggie and Phil and Yvonne and I were able to go to uh, Colorado and join the huddle with Tom Harkis. Um, the churches are maybe about 15 churches were represented. Uh, these are churches that had a history with Tom Harkis. Tom was at uh, Grace Church of DuPage, our grandmother church. And uh, a couple guys in that ministry have now gone off to plant churches. One, Steve Mansour in um, Oregon. Uh, Clark Richardson is in uh, Fox Valley, Aurora area. They're part of this network. And he went out to Fort Collins, Colorado, knowing nobody, planting a church. And that church has grown to about 700 people and planted several other churches around the Colorado area. Um, he has since now gone to um, North Carolina to plant a church. And those are churches around North Carolina, uh, Colorado are part of this network. And so also those um, out in, in Wilmington, North Carolina, some people out there. And, and really the huddle's a time to connect with all these friends of one another who have... Uh, relationships with Tom. It's time to be strengthened and urged to, to press forward the mission of making disciples and planting churches. They're working hard to share resources so every church doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. And because of Tom's influence, of course, just strong evangelistic, just trying to reach out, encourage congregations just to reach out to people they know and share their lives with them and share the gospel with them and that God might grant repentance. And, and I know that I was... Uh, uh, especially encouraged by their evangelistic outreach. Just, just my heart was again stirred. Uh, I pray that uh, God will guide us, me, all of us, how we can reach out to those who don't know Christ to, to bring the gospel to them that they might know everlasting joy. And um, so that was a, a good good time out there. But also I was encouraged by the life-giving environment. It's just a it's just an encouraging time. One thing that I didn't really expect was, uh, first of all, I knew how their friendships would be. I haven't seen each other since last year, so they get together and see each other. But, but also during our session, each of these churches would stand up and share the joys and the sorrows of ministry. The, the joys, you know, you hear of the things of, um, you know, church increasing and the baptisms they had and the, the marriages have been reconciled and the people coming to Christ and, you know, those things. But they also were very open in sharing their struggles, their congregation, um, just one, one, one guy just shared about just his open conflict with uh, another elder who was right there um, and just said, you know, we're just seeing things differently. And could you guys pray for us that we might, might see that resolved? That was very helpful and encouraging. They, they talked about broken marriages in their congregation um, and just crushed about that. Like, here we are, the church, and yet marriages are falling apart where we are and and just asking for prayer about that. And they even openly shared one church, the big church, um, one of the pastors on staff fell to immorality, committed adultery with someone in the congregation. And as a guy shared it, he shared it with tears and the anguish and the difficulty that he had. And um, So they're real, real. And that was very encouraging. And then after that, people would gather around each church who shared. Just those who were near, just place hands on <coughs> husband and wife. And <coughs> Excuse me pastors, associate pastors, elders, who were anybody who was there, and just prayed uh, for each church. And that was uh, an incredibly encouraging time, um, just when people laid hands on Yvonne and I and Phil and Darren and just prayed for Rock Valley Bible Church as well. I just, you know, brought tears to my eyes just to feel the support and encouragement and unity of people there. And this trip was great on several levels. First of all, it was great on, on uh, a personal level as Yvonne and I got to spend time together. That was very nice. 
Um, there such trips like that. Husbands, if you can take those kind of trips, they're good for your marriage. So I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, second, it was a great time to spend with Phil and Darren and, and Maggie. My only regret, Karen, you couldn't join us. It was uh, just Karen, <laughs> not you, Karen. So Karen, uh, Karen Gusky. But yeah, you too. You know, we like to spend time with you. Um, but just strengthen our relationships. I just love Phil and Darren and the unity we have among the elder board. I am so thankful for that. That has not always been the case. And just very thankful for what we have there. Thankful for their humble, like-minded hearts. We want to serve you all as a church. Um, it's a great blessing to serve on a, a leadership staff where, where men just... We want to we want to encourage and help and support each other. We're not fighting with each other, and that's a help to us. Thirdly, it was encouraging to see a network of churches led by men who genuinely cared for each other. And you, and you see, watch them interact. You see the depth of relationships. Uh, some have known each other, been in ministry together for over 20 years. Uh, their love is is obvious, and their fellowship together is really a, a sweet thing. And I just say a sweet trip we had, and a great picture of our psalm this morning. Psalm 133 is our text. If you haven't opened your Bible already there, I'd encourage you to take your Bible, open it up to Psalm 133. If you didn't bring a Bible in the front pew, there's one. If you don't have a Bible, take that home. It's one, again one of the songs of ascent, the songs that Israel would sing as they went up to Jerusalem to worship. There are 15 of these psalms beginning in Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. Three times a year, God commanded at least the men to come up and worship before the Lord in Jerusalem. And um, there are 15 songs that they sang. And each one of these songs have something to teach about worship. Whether it's, uh, hey, I'm far from God, God, I need you, like Psalm 120. Or, or I'm walking up the mountains and I'm lifting my eyes there and I, uh, you are there and you're where my help comes from, Psalm 121. Or, or Psalm 122, when David was said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Just a desire to go. It teaches us that. Or, or maybe Psalm 124. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, they would have swallowed us alive, remembering that God brought us through in the past. He'll bring us through in the future. Or Psalm 125. How, how God surrounds His people as the mountains surround Jerusalem. Or perhaps some psalms like the family psalms. Psalm 127 or Psalm 128 to speak about the blessings of family. Or perhaps Psalm 130 just puts forth the gospel that we saw last week. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Well, this morning we come to, I think it's our ninth psalm. We'll have six more after this. It's a, it's a little psalm, only three verses. that speaks of the blessing of brothers who dwell in unity together. I just think of the pastors around town. We have great unity among us. I think about the elders here. We have great unity. Think about the network of churches. There's great unity. Think about churches where there's dwelling. There's great unity. And there is great blessing when brothers dwell in unity. In fact, that is the theme of every single one of these verses. Dwelling together in unity brings great blessing. Let's say that together. Dwelling together in unity brings great blessing. Say again. Dwelling together in unity brings great blessing. Every verse says that. Verse 1 just states that point. Verse 2 illustrates that point. Verse 3 illustrates that point. 
So we can almost have an outline, the statement and two illustrations. Let's read it together. And why don't you think about how, how it is that uh, dwelling together in unity brings great blessing. Behold, verse 1, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. He says, first simile, it is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down on the edge that is the collar of his robes. Second simile, it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Well, the title of my message this morning is Dwelling in Unity. If I was puritanical and would have an extended title, my title would be Dwelling Together in Unity Brings Great Blessing. But here's my first point. Dwelling in unity is good and pleasant. That's exactly what verse 1 says. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. David here gives two adjectives to describe the benefits of brothers dwelling in unity. He says how it's good. He said it's pleasant. And notice the emphasis. He says it's how good it is and how pleasant it is. He just repeats this word how just to just to stir us up in how how wonderful it is when brothers dwell in unity. These words, good and pleasant, are essentially synonyms. They they say the same thing. If there's any difference in them, words always have a slight nuance of difference. Good might refer to the morality of unity. It's just it's what is right and uh, the second, pleasant, might speak about the, the benefits of unity. That, that it brings good feelings. It bling, brings a blessing to us. It is pleasant. Unity is good, first of all, because it's the way that things are meant to be. It's the way that things are supposed to be. God created a world that was good. Genesis 1. Six days, God saw it was good. Day 1. Day 2. He created the world. He saw it was good. And day three and day four and day five. And at the end of day six, God looked at everything that he created and it was very good. That's how God created the world. Good, unified. All are unified in the garden. Adam and Eve, first marriage, dwelling in unity. The very, very last verse of Genesis 22. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's an openness picture. That's a unity picture. That is a good picture. Then sin came and destroyed the unity. The man and his wife, then there's conflict between them. God said to Eve, your desire be for your husband and he will rule over you. She wants to rule over him. He wants to rule over her. He is stronger. Men are stronger. And often you just need to look at the world. Pagan marriage is often men who dominate the women. It's because of the fall. It's conflict in marriage. It's existed ever since. And that conflict is not good. But conflict merely just in marriage after the fall extends to the family. The very first brothers, Cain and Abel, had conflict. There wasn't unity there even in the first family. Cain killed Abel. And then you look at the patriarchs. The patriarchs did not have unity in their family. Right? Jacob and Esau fighting each other. Isaac and Ishmael didn't necessarily fight, but there wasn't unity. Different mothers. And then the sons of Jacob. Right? They, they rose up, sold Joseph off to slavery, one of their brothers. There wasn't unity among them. There was fighting, conflict. The conflict isn't just within families. It extends to the community of God's people. 
I mean, as soon as Israel was taken out of Egypt, out of slavery, you'd think they'd be thankful. Instead, they're, they're grumbling and complaining about each other and disunified towards Moses, their leader. Conflict didn't just end with community, it extends to nations. I mean, the history of the world, it's a history of nations warring against one another. You just need to read the Old Testament. You can see the disunity. It all comes about result of the fall, and it's not good. From the beginning, it was not so. God created a world that was good, but God has worked and God is working to restore the unity of all things. When he brings all things to himself, first he sent his son to come as a sacrifice for sins, the lamb of God. He came as a suffering servant so as to bear our sin upon himself so that He could restore the church. And that was just like a first fruit to what He'd done. He just started. And Jesus now, according to Psalm 110, is sitting and waiting for the consummation of all things when He's going to restore all things. And in the end, all things will be put in subjection to the Lord and all will be in order. Jesus should be reigning on the throne. God will be with Him, reigning on the throne. God the Father, God the Son reigning forever. You can read about it in Revelation. All be unified. All be good once again. Unity is good because it's the way things are supposed to be. That is the the path of history. Verse 1 also says that brothers walking in unity is pleasant. It is delightful, enjoyable, beautiful, beneficial. In fact, um, Paul even spoke about that in the book of Philippians when he says, I... Even in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Philippians, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, I'm confident this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. And you're partakers of grace with me. And I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's just putting forth a longing and a, and a prayer and affection and a joy and a togetherness. And he's rejoicing in that. And he calls them to unity of mind. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And so when there's united um, minds and hearts, Paul says it gives me joy, it gives me pleasure, it is delightful. And that's exactly what this second word is. There's there's a a pleasure to it. It, It's pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. When you can hear of churches dwell in unity, there's something that's pleasant about that. When When you hear and see brothers together in unity, there's something delightful about that. That's what that's what's said right here. Verses two and three really give two pictures of this pleasure. I'm going to go through them quickly and then I'm going to kind of bring it around to maybe a, a fourth point, which is an invisible point, kind of tying everything together. But let's let's look at what dwelling in unity is like. My second point, it, it's like anointing oil. Verse two, it's, it's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. Now, any Jew would have understood this. So they worked through the law, worked through the Old Testament, read through um, Exodus, read through Leviticus, speaks about the priest and the high priest and particularly talks about the the time in which Aaron was anointed as high priest. 
Let me just read it in Exodus 29. If you want to, you can turn back there. I'm just going to read the first nine verses. Now, this is what you shall do to consecrate them, God talking to Moses, to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish. So you got a bull, got two rams. And unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil. You shall make of them fine wheat flour and you shall put them in a basket and present them in the basket along with the bulls and two rams. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So in other words, right, you take these animals, you bring them before the Lord. You've got this offering. You bring this before the Lord as well. And later on in the chapter, it even describes how these, these bulls are sacrificed and how the blood of the bulls are to be, be sprinkled on the, the right earlobe of Aaron and his sons and on his right thumb and on his right big toe. And following that, some more sacrifices. And then comes this oil that they were to, to give. And he said this, You shall take the garments... You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So picture Aaron and his four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, coming before the tent. They're washed with water. You shall take garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of an ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. So here he is, he's wearing this turban, he's wearing this special dress, his, his sons are, uh, are there, they're wearing some robes well, but not quite as special as Aaron, probably in the middle. And then it says this, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them. And they shall have a priesthood by perpetual statute. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Psalm 133 verse 2 focuses on this moment. When the oil was poured upon the head of Aaron, anointing him. So much oil was poured that it, that it dripped down his head onto his beard. And in fact, so much oil was poured, it dripped down his beard onto the collar, the edge of his robes, and, and it got over his robes. Now, this is a significant event in the life of Israel that established the, the priesthood. And future priests were ordained for ministry, but never anointed quite like this. In fact, Aaron's sons weren't anointed like this. It was the high priest who was anointed like this. A one-time event. In fact, God even said, this mixture of oil that you did, don't ever do that again. This is the one time we anointed this Aaronic priest, the priest of Aaron. It signified, really, this fact that the priesthood came, this oil anointing, signified the entrance and the path and the way to God. As these priests would approach God on behalf of the people. And then from that, later instructions came about the Day of Atonement, when they would come and atone for the sins of himself, he would, and then atone for the sins of the people. And as the pilgrims traveled to Zion to come up to the temple to worship, they would, they would see the priests and maybe they would get to see the high priests. And David, here in Psalm 133, verse 2, directs their minds back to the day when Aaron was anointed, this special day which really changed the course of the history of the nation forever. And, and so I'm thinking about what's, what's a good parallel for us? And I can only think of one. I can just think of the celebration we'll have this Thursday. What, what's happening Thursday again? What is it? Fourth of July. 
By the way, this is for free. If, if ever you have a foreign friend that you just want to kind of play with and joke around with, okay, you say, oh, in, in China, do they have a 4th of July? And you know what they say? No, no, we don't have 4th of July. And you say, oh, you just go from the 3rd to the 5th because you skip the 4th. Is that right? And it just, it's just kind of, kind of funny. But anyway, anyway, 4th of July, our Independence Day celebration. National holiday, government businesses are closed. Most of us take a day off work. In the evening, many find themselves in a park someplace, and as dust starts going down, the kids take the sparklers out, and they, they wave them all around, and the teenagers are more into the, the firecrackers and the smoke bombs, and then we watch these... And when you see that, what do you say? Ooh, ah. Or you might hear people say, beautiful, beautiful. It's just, ah, oh, it, we celebrate. And, and, and when those things are, are going off, sometimes our mind is brought back to July 4th, 1776. The signing of the Declaration of Independence. When Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and John Hancock and 52 others took pen in hand and signed that document, changing the course of our nation forever. Now, certainly there have been struggles as our nation. All has not been good and pleasant. But there's been enough blessings that, that that day becomes a crucial day for us to really look back with thankfulness at the freedom we do have. We're losing, but at least we have some freedom more than other countries. That's why we celebrate 237 years after the event. Now, I think that this is similar to what the worshiper would have felt in some regard when he comes to see the priests ministering. And when he comes to see the high priest and he thinks perhaps back on the day when the high priest started. That was back when Aaron was dumped with oil. The founding day of all temple worship, thereby changing the course of the nation forever. And, it, and just like Fourth of July just oftentimes gives us good and pleasant feelings as it brings out the good in life that we have a good freedom. So likewise, that's how good and pleasant the Israelites would have felt. And that's what unity is like. It's like that feeling we have on the 4th of July when all is around and everyone's happy. Well, he gives another picture in verse 3. Dwelling in unity is not only like anointing oil, it's also like refreshing rain. Verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. And remember, Israel lived in a dry land. Water was scarce, Cities were always built near a source of water, some spring someplace. And uh, the, the city walls always went just a right around the spring. And that's a very vulnerable place because the spring is a low spot. But the wall went around there, is really fortified, and that's where they get water and then bring it into the city. Jerusalem is like that. There is a, a water uh, right at the edge of the, uh, the city of David, which I showed you a couple of weeks ago. Right down there, there's a spring and the, the the uh, city walls would go right around that to be able to keep a water supply. So when attacked, at least they have water, they can survive. But water was very precious to Jewish people, those living in Israel. Um, and rain, as a result, was very precious to them as well. And you say, where did the rain come from? Well, if you're in a dry place, the rain just doesn't emerge. The rain comes from someplace. And for the most part, rain comes in Israel from Mount Hermon. It's about 100 miles north of uh, Jerusalem, 
It is a, a range of mountains, mostly the peak of which is Mount Hermon, usually covered with snow. At least every winter time, it snows up, builds again, and then the, the snow comes down. So often it's been called the snowy mountain or the gray-haired mountain. As the snow melts in the southern face, much of it flows into the Sea of Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem. Uh, I'm not sure how many miles. I'm guessing now 70 miles, 50 miles, something like that. It flows into the, the Sea of Galilee where Jesus ministered. Then it flows down the Jordan River into the Dead Sea. Now, the closest it gets to the Dead Sea, to Jerusalem, is about 20 miles down Jericho. Remember, that's below sea level, and Jerusalem is, well, a couple thousand feet above sea level. And so that's, that's not the, the rain they're talking about, but they're talking about the dew there, the, not the melting snow. They're talking about more the evaporating snow or the, the moisture that's there that evaporates, that forms the clouds that comes over Jerusalem, that dumps Jerusalem with the, the refreshing, life-giving rain. And that's where the rain comes from. And, and here's the picture. It's the unity among brothers is, is like rain coming in Jerusalem. Right After a long drought, when the rain comes, there's much excitement, there's much encouragement, there's much refreshment, there's much life. One poet said it this way, So the dews on Hermon's hill, which the summer clouds distill, floating southward in the night, pearly gems, on Zion light. Pearly gems is the light. Is the rain that comes down because you know they're going to uh, be given life. You know that whatever you have there can collect in uh, your spring and you'll be good. And without the rains coming to Jerusalem, life will be difficult. But with the rains, life comes. And ultimately, life brought by the water is really a foretaste of eternal life. That's what verse 3 speaks about. For there in Zion, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Now, for the Jew, eternal life flowed out of Zion. Zion's where God has put His name. Zion is where God had chosen to dwell. Zion is where the sacrifices were offered to God to atone for the sins of Israel. That's why people went there to Jerusalem three times out of a year to worship. Because there, it's, life was found there. Now, for us, of course, it's different. And God has changed things because Messiah has come. We don't live in the Old Testament days. David did in Psalm 133. But things are different for us because Jesus has come to bring that life. His priesthood is a different priesthood. It's based upon Melchizedek, not upon the Aaronic priesthood. And he is the priest who brings us to God. Just as to go to God in Jerusalem day, you need to bring lambs and goats and sacrifices. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has come. His sacrifice upon the cross is sufficient to atone for our sins. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we need simply to believe in Him to receive this great blessing, life forever. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe? It's what you need to do to have everlasting life, to receive the blessing of God, is to believe and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the one who you will embrace and trust your whole life to. It's the only way sins will be forgiven. Does today find you trusting in Jesus? If not, I urge you to trust in Him for eternal life. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son of God will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on Him. 
John 3.36. You believe in the Son, you'll have eternal life. But if you don't obey the Son, you won't have life. Because belief brings obedience. Disobedience means unbelief. Do you believe Him? Do you obey Him? Is He your Lord? Is He your Savior? Church family, believe in the Son and know the life and the blessing that it brings. All right, well, that's Psalm 133. I'm not done with my message yet. All right, we're going we're gonna to step back here a little bit now and we're going to think about some applications, some implications about unity and the blessing of, of unity. I want to return to verse 1. Notice how David speaks about the blessing comes to brothers who dwell together in unity. I don't think David is only talking about biological brothers here. Right? I, I think one of the reasons is is because this is a, a psalm of ascent to go up where the whole house of God is going to be there. All the tribes of Israel. I think he's probably talking, you argue mostly, is he's talking about the community. The people of God is primarily he's talking about there. Brothers. Even in church we use that. Right? We have brothers and sisters here. Uh, that's how Jesus spoke. And, and that's anyone who believes is part of the family of God. We are brothers. I think that's exactly what the term he is using in here. So he is saying how good and pleasant it is for God's people to dwell in unity. And surely it's a sight to behold, right? When the, when the people gather together and are in unity, it is a pleasure to know. Just trust me, it's a pleasure to know. That's why the psalmist said, A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Right? In other words, I'd rather be with God and His people in unity with God and with others than to be outside the tent dwelling in wickedness with wicked people because it's no fun here. I'll take one day with God's people than a thousand out here because it's way better to be with God's people in unity. Because it's like, it's like oil, anointing oil. It's like refreshing rain that comes. That's what Psalm 133 speaks about. But that's, I don't think, even to limit um, the, the principle here that unity brings great blessing. And in fact, I would argue that, that this principle about brothers dwelling to unity it, it really transfers to all different uh, communities that we have. Whether it's marriages, whether it's families, whether it's as big as nations, this principle still applies. So let's just think. Let's just go maybe small to big. So let's talk about marriage. Unity in marriage. When Adam and Eve was, when Adam was alone in the garden, the Lord said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In other words, it's not good to be alone. I'm going to... Make someone, I'm going to make a helper for him, and it will be good for the man and the woman to live together in harmony. Adam leaving, leading, the wife helping. Not in conflict with each other, but with each other in unity. And I say this, it's bad and unpleasant when that unity is broken. When the marriage bond is broken, it's bad and unpleasant. When there's marital strife, it's bad and unpleasant. And I'm just some verses. You know the Proverbs that speak of the contentious wife? You familiar with those? They'll speak of how terrible it is to live in the same home with an argumentative wife which just stirs disunity. Proverbs 21.9 It's better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. When there's disunity in the home, it's better to go sleeping on the roof, guys. 
Right? Just, you, see, you see the point what I'm talking about? Unity in marriage is good and it's sweet. Disunity in marriage, you might as well be sleeping outside under the stars. It's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Just When there's disunity in the home, it's just better, it's, it's more pleasant to be outside at home. That's exactly the opposite of what verse 1 says. Right? Brothers dwelling together in unity is sweet, but... Husband and wife dwelling in disunity is unpleasant. In fact, one of the Proverbs speaks about like a constant dripping. So it is with a contentious woman. You ever heard of the Chinese water torture? I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I just, I, I, I've heard this before that, you know, you have someone there and you, what do you just drip, 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 whops on your head? Well, that gives you a flavor of how unpleasant it is when there's no harmony in the marriage. It's awful. On the other hand, when man and women are living together in peace and love, it is a sight to behold. The Proverbs says, Proverbs 30, there are three things that are too amazing for me. Four I do not understand. This is amazing. The way of the eagle in the sky. Right? We've seen the eagle fly in the sky. It's just like, wow. I mean, look. Look at the eagle. Or look at the hawk even. Look at the bird fly. Look at just catching those thermal. Isn't that a wonderful thing to watch? There are three things that are too amazing for me. Four I don't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a snake on a rock. You seen a snake snither across a rock? It's like, how does it do that? It just goes like this and kind of slips. And you're like, wow, that was neat. I mean, you might be scared of snakes and all, but maybe if they're behind a cage or something, you see them slither along. It is a neat thing how it, how it weaves back and forth like this. And you can just look at that and say, wow, that is incredible. There are three things that are too amazing to me. Four, I don't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship in the high seas. Huge ship. How is it that it sits in the high seas? I remember we were in California visiting Yvonne's folks one time. And actually, we were out at Alcatraz. Um, just taking the, the tour there. Uh, we'd never done that before, so we were, we we're taking the tour. And we saw this barge that was like incredibly huge. I mean, you, the containers that go on, on barges, I have no idea how many containers. Do you remember that time, Yvonne? You seen that? I don't know how many containers were on that barge. Um, I'd be wrong even to guess, okay? I'm not, I'm not even going to guess. But it was enough that I just went, <laughs> took some pictures of it, and you know how pictures of... Um, uh, 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 like that would turn out pictures. I'm trying to think pictures of landscape or the Grand Canyon. You seen a picture of a Grand Canyon? You ever been to the Grand Canyon? It's a lot different than taking pictures of the Grand Canyon, right? Right, guys. So you, you can't catch it. And so pictures I took it. You can't even catch it. Just how huge this thing was, and it's floating in the sea. And it's amazing. I, I, I couldn't really understand it. There are three things that are too amazing for me. Four I don't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. It's like, wow, that is, that's amazing. That's why weddings are so wonderful. A man and his bride. They're together. They're happy. Oh, they may have had pre-marriage conflicts and stuff, but they're happy that day. They're walking in unity. They're pledging their lives towards one another. Their conflict has been little. I was at a wedding yesterday. My niece, 
was married. She's the first of my parents, first grandchildren to be married. 22 grandchildren. I think that's right, right? I, was, I, can't, I can't even keep in track. 22 grandchildren. And um, all my brothers and sisters were there. All their spouses and all their children were there. Had a great time of rejoicing. And all of us were there. We're happy together. But especially happy of all of us were Emily and Andrew, the bride and the groom, as they begin their life together. You know, one of the things I, I tell those who are soon to be married, I, I say, you know, a wedding, a wedding day is great because... As long as you get married, it doesn't matter what happens, okay? Everyone's happy. I've sat in receptions before at marriages. I love marriages because everyone is happy. Their happiness, Lord willing, can continue for years to come. And their happiness and their marriage can be such that it models Christ in the church. And when it does, that is a gloriously happy thing. But when it doesn't model Christ in the church... It can be a terribly difficult and painful thing. When a marriage relationship is broken, I tell you, it brings the worst of pains. I don't need to tell you the pains of divorce. You're familiar with them. I just say this. Is that pains of divorce are similar to taking and ripping your flesh apart. It's not pleasant. I don't need to tell you the pains of unfaithfulness. You can imagine them, but this past week at the... uh, the Crossway Chapel Network. I, I did have a chance to sit down with one of the pastors who dealt with this fellow pastor who fell into immorality and just trying to glean pastoral insights. Not every day that you get to speak with someone who had such a great friend, such a man who's walking with God. So I'm like, okay, so what happened? I mean, I don't even know the guy, so it's not like God bless him. Like, what happened? How'd you respond? How'd you learn? What, things about that. And he told me a little about the situation, but he said, The thing that stands out among everything about dealing with this is how painful and ugly and awful and horrendous it is that that in and of itself has scared me from ever doing anything like that myself. He said he was right there when the man, who was repentant by the way, told his wife what happened and they're trying to get together, but it's just a hard, hard thing. If a brother offended is more difficult to win than a strong city... So likewise, our marriage is so difficult to put that back together after immorality has taken place. But I'm just telling you, it's very painful and very difficult when that is broken. Psalm 133 is, is true of marriage. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when spouses dwell together in unity. And the opposite is totally true as well. Behold, how bad And how painful it is when married couples live in disunity. In fact, that's why divorce is so common. It's just too painful at home. Just need some relief. Let's just get apart because the pain is so great. Well, Psalm 133 verse 1 is true of marriage. It's also true of the family. Behold how good and pleasant it is when genuine brothers and parents and sisters and grandparents dwell in unity. That's the picture of Psalm 128 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Look over there. Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in His ways. And then verses 2 and 3 are, are like blessings. They're pictures. Your wife, when you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you'll be happy and it'll be well with you. Just happiness in the house. 
Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. The picture there is happiness and fruitfulness and joy and pleasure when the family is together in unity. Uh, Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. It's a picture. Big, happy, healthy, unified family will receive the blessing of God all their lives. And the opposite is true as well. Behold, how bad and how painful it is for families to dwell in disunity. Disunity in the family is bad. Disunity in the family is painful. Broken relationships, brothers and sisters, dysfunctional families, they are they're difficult. They are hard. They cause much pain. They cause emotional anguish when every Christmas time comes up and you can't get together with your family because you can't even tolerate your own flesh and blood. There's a, there's a pain that goes deep into that. There's a pain when children are, are estranged from their parents. The pain on the parent's side, pain on the, the children's side. Here are a few Proverbs speak about how painful it is for families in unity. Proverbs 17.1 Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Do you catch what he's saying? Better is a dry morsel. Better is, is almost empty cupboards where all you got is dry macaroni. I'll take dry macaroni over a house of feasting and strife. House of feasting where there's, there's plenty around, right? There's steak and salmon on the grill whenever you want. There, there's pleasures there. But there's strife and there's argument. And I say it's better to have dry macaroni and the loving of family than it is having all that meat and caviar and whatever feasting if you've got a family of strife because it's so bad and so painful when you dwell in disunity. Another proverb, Proverbs 15, 17. Better is a dish of vegetable where, vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. Now, vegetables is, is talking about poverty. It's maybe alluding here to not tasting so well. Right? Some of your kids maybe don't like vegetables so much. But it, it sustains you. At least it's enough. But better is just vegetables to see when, when love is there than a house. And the fat ox serve with hatred. See, when there's strife, it is awful. It is just awful how bad and how painful it is when brothers dwell in disunity. And I say this, family unity is far better than any material blessing you might have. I mean, you just think about material blessing. Family unity is better than a gigantic mansion on a lake. Family unity is better than ability to travel the world whenever you want. Family unity is, is better than having enough private wealth to never have to work a day in your life if there's strife on the other side. Family unity is better than having a, jo- a yacht or a private jet. Listen, none of these things, if strife is in the home, can compare at all to a unified Family where there's peace and harmony and unity, regardless of the income. That's what Proverbs 15, 16 says. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. It might help us to think about what are the aims for our families. Like, in the, what, what are we aiming for in our families? Are we, we aiming finances? Is that the most important thing? 
that doesn't bring the true joy. What brings the true joy is the, the faith and love and unity and fidelity in, in the home. And some of you say, I'm talking about marriage and family. Certainly there, there's pain in your own heart. And if, if there is, you just resonate with what I'm saying, what the Bible says, and let's aim towards unity. Psalm 133, 133 verse 1 is true of nations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His inheritance. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. just speaks about the blessing there when there are righteous people in a nation. Jesus said, though, on the flip side, any kingdom divided, divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. You're divided in a nation, divided in a kingdom, it's just not going to stand. There's got to be unity there. When there's no unity, it will fall and it will crumble. It's taking place before our eyes. Our nation is divided. We have a difficult time standing. Well, let's get back to the original intent of Psalm 133. Those are by way of application. I'm just showing you the truth of what's there. But the original application is, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers, that is for the people of God, to dwell in unity. Psalm 133 verse 1 is true of the church. And this is where I want to end because this is where I think David would have us think about the community of God where it's really applicable to us. Behold how good and pleasant it is for a church to dwell in unity. And behold how bad and painful it is for the people of a church to dwell in disunity. And I just say the times in my life that have been most joyful have been the times of unity in the church. The times in my life that have been most painful have been the times of disunity in the church. If there's anything Jesus wants, it's unity in His church. High priestly prayer, John 17. He's praying to His Father. He says, The glory which You have given Me, I have given to them that they may be just as, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Think about this. As the church is unified, it displays the power of Christ working in the church. And as the power of Christ working in the church is evident and manifest, that proclaims to the world that God is with Christ and Christ is with God. Jesus said this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34 and 35. In other words, when the church is unified in love, in peace and harmony and goodwill towards one another, it will make an effect upon the world. When we love each other, the world will look at us and see those must be disciples of Christ. And it may lead them to repentance. They may continue in their, heart, their hardness. We don't know. But it will make an effect upon the world. People may well come to believe. I don't think it's any accident at all that the early church made such an impact in their day because they had such love and unity for one another. Acts 2, verse 44 through 47. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind and in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Just don't miss the connection between their love and care and genuine unity and how God was adding to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. As they shared with each other, God saved those who watched. They shared and loved, and God saved. And I think there's a correlation there. Because Jesus said, people know that you're my disciples. It's clear and it's evidence. We read in Acts chapter 5 and reading through the book of Acts. Remember that, that Ananias and Sapphira were, were disciplined in the, and, and died. And the church, though, was unified. And everybody respected the church. They were fearful. They didn't know they wanted to join. But at least they knew that God was working in their midst. And that's what happened. And so I just say this. Is this your heart? Do you desire God to work at Rock Valley Bible Church? One way, I say, according to Psalm 133, is to know the pleasantries of dwelling in unity. Pursue the unity of Rock Valley Bible Church. Pray for peace within our walls. I don't think it's an accident that so many of these psalms of ascents are talking about peace. Peace is another word for unity, well-being, unitedness, wholeness. Psalm 122, look at that, verses 6 through 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Right? Seeking peace. Seeking good. Seeking pleasure. Seeking the blessing of God. Seeking impact in the world. Psalm 125. Look how it ends. Peace be upon Israel. Psalm 128, look how it ends. Peace be upon Israel. They want the peace there to be, let God's name be known. Let His work be accomplished. And His peace reigned in Jerusalem, so also I believe God's blessing. And so church family, I say this, as peace and harmony and unity reign in our church family, God, God's word will be opened to make an impact in the world. When there's not peace, there's not harmony there, there can be a disconnect. I mean, that's true in marriage, right? Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, right? With a weaker vessel since she's a woman, right? And deal with her so that it says your prayers may not be hindered. When you're not living in harmony rightly in your marriage, your prayers can be hindered. So likewise, when a, a church is not living in harmony, its effectiveness will be limited. The word will be limited. But you want to open and unleash the word? Seek unity among the brothers. I remember a time at, at Rock Valley Bible Church when we didn't experience this unity. Um, it was an awful time. Um, in, in fact, I think one way you can think about this is even trace through... My, I've made five trips to Nepal from this church over there helping. And um, I made a trip in 2005. I came back and just said, wow, this is really good for me. It's good for us. I just want to put missions on our hearts. We'd have more missions mindedness so we can really think about the world. I went in 2005, went in 2006. And we had some difficult problems in our church in 2006. You know when I got back to Nepal again? Not in 2007. Not in 2008. Finally, when things revolved, in 2009. And then I went in 2010 and 2012, I think. Uh, but just about every 18 months I've been able to go. Except when there's turmoil in the church. Why? It's because there's so much focus inward that I couldn't get outward like that. That was more of a, a symptom. But when churches fight with one another, right? The, what do they do? All their efforts inward 
And the world looks and says, ha ha, you hypocrites. And they don't have any energy to get out. So why God has left us to make disciples of the world. It's exactly what Satan wants. There's nothing more that he wants than engaging the world and fighting with one another. When the deeds of the flesh are manifest. Remember the deeds of the flesh? Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorceries, enmities. Okay, now listen to these deeds of the flesh. They're fighting words. Strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissections and factions. Those are the sorts of fruits of the, the deeds of the flesh that Satan wants. Because when those things happen, the church just fights against itself. It can't make an impact in the world. Sadly, it's too often the pattern of the church. Last night at his wedding, I was speaking with my uncle. He asked how things are going at church. I told him. He was telling me about how things are going at his church. Now, he's a, a liberal church. Okay? It's not Bible. So I tried to just focus him and say, well, what's happening at Rock Valley Bible Church? Is God just understandably standing on the Bible? And, and that's what we believe. He talked about his church attendance was going down a little bit and people didn't like the pastor and other problems. And then he said this. He said, you know how nasty people can be. I said, I know how nasty people can be. Because we're sinners. I know how nasty I can be. All right? So, not like it's... Not, I know how nasty I can be. Because I'm a, a sinner saved by grace. But that's the word he used. And he was describing the deeds of the flesh. And everything turning sour in the church. And the pastor leaving, getting someone else. And hopefully the, the things will go better. But, but it's not a biblical... It's just a gathering. Whatever. But you just see the disunity in the, the church... And I say this, by God's grace, we are not in a time of disunity at Rock Valley Bible Church. As a result, we can spend our energies outward. We can seek to impact the world for Christ. And I say, let's do so. Pray that the time the elders spent at the huddle would bear fruit in bringing us a greater heart to reach out to those outside. And that, I don't think the solution is great church programs. I think the solution to that is you all, all of you, getting out and where you know people, just being with people and talking to them and sharing with them about Jesus. Pray that the fruit of the Spirit would be manifest in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That these things would be evident in our lives. That God would bless us. People would see that we are disciples of Christ. And I say when these things are pleasant in our life, when we're patient with one another, when we're loving one another, being kind and expressing goodness to one another. We have peace and joy in being together. God will use us in a great way. You want to impact the world? Seek unity. You want to enjoy life? Seek unity. Because how good and how pleasant it is for us when we dwell in unity. I just say this. Ephesians 4 verse 3 says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And may we know the blessings. And may we see God work at Rock Valley Bible Church. Let's pray. Lord, these things are really in your hands. They're not, not in mine. There's so many relationships here at church. I can't, I can't control them all. Uh, but I can merely influence so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. I can influence people that way. I can influence people towards love and unity. God, but you've got to do that work. And so, Lord, I pray even right now you'd convict of sin where disunity exists. And you would bring about unity. God, for our sakes, that we might know how good and pleasing it is to us 
experientially. And certainly, God, how good and pleasing it is to you. I pray you'd use us here at Rock Valley Bible Church, God, to know the joys of Christian community and to know the joys of you working through us to reach a lost world for Christ. So we place these things in your hand. God, take this word, let it run in the hearts of your people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.